We're going to learn tonight uh, that uh, he is always present and working through his church. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're in Acts 3 tonight. For um, after a month of Acts 2, we're going to move on to Acts 3. Believe it or not, we're going to get through it in one night. And I won't do that thing where I go back and say there's one more message somewhere stuck in this. So we're going to get through Acts 3 tonight. Um, Not that it's not as important as Acts 2, but we really used Acts 2 to set up and set the stage for what's to come. Um, Because in Acts 2, we see the movement lift off. We see the church born and hit the streets, literally hit the road, uh, the the town of Jerusalem, and then go on from there to the world uh, is what the rest of the book of Acts is about. It launches in Acts 2. We see the movement lift off. We see the community really come to life. Uh, The end of Acts 2, we spent uh, two weeks looking at kind of our Christmas special, uh, talking about how the church community fulfilled that promise of God with us and took it to another level, God within us, uh, how God is present in the hearts of his people and how we live out the incarnation to this day. Uh, Christ became a man, a literal breathing flesh and blood person, and we, literally breathing uh, fleshing, flesh and blood people, we carry on that incarnation of God, that real presence of God on earth. God in us and God through us. So the end of Acts 2 sets the stage for what the church is going to be all about. Uh, really for the next 10 chapters, Acts 2 sets the tone for the, the context because the next 10 chapters or so really kind of center around and revolve around what was going on through the Jerusalem church, which was the only church, the only gathering. Um, in Acts 12, they start a second uh, office or a second plant, uh, which we'll have a lot of fun talking about that in the future. But uh, again, it's all out of Jerusalem for the first, 10 chap- first 12 chapters of Acts or so. Um, All the activity will sort of be flowing in and out of the church community that we've seen established um, so far. Now, we'll be referencing the foundation that we laid over the past few weeks. So if you're here for our Acts 2 studies, um, very important. Uh, The two things that we pulled from Acts 2 that we're going to continue to pull from over the next couple of weeks is that the church is the movement of God. Uh, as in God moving on earth, God moves through the church, through the people of God. The church is the movement of God, not just a, uh, a gathering, a static gathering or a building. It is a movement, and we saw how God began to move and how he continues to move, as Peter said that he would. And also we learned last week that the church is the body of Christ, as in the real body, real life, uh, real people. Uh, as Christ was real, so are we, a real body of people. Uh, What's teased out in Acts 2 is how devoted this group was, how devoted this movement and this body was to growing and going, growing and going. Not just growing as as an institution or growing as a movement, but growing individually. Uh, We read about how they were devoted to growing as people uh, in their own relationship with God. We read about, and we're going to read about how they were devoted to growing relationally, as in they knew that it wasn't just about them and God, it was about us and God. Uh, They knew that God had more kids than just, you know, God has more kids than just me. Not that I'm, you know, I can be conceited with anybody, as much as anybody, maybe more than most, Uh, but I have to realize that God has more kids than me. He might love me more, but he has y'all too. (laughs) But the church in the early days, they realized that it's not just me, it's us. So they were devoted to growing relationally, and of course, they were devoted to growing communally, Uh, that they wanted to make sure that everybody felt a part of the family in a, you know, Clicks aren't new. Churches kind of getting in, people getting in their own corners is not new. It happened in the early days. It still happens today, but it didn't start today. It started then. Uh, but we have to keep in mind that we need to be devoted to growing communally, keeping that fellowship uh, right at the, the, the top of the list. Uh, but they were also devoted to going. They were devoted to going into their world uh, as Jesus told them, as you go. 
um, you're going to reach the world and share the gospel and make a difference. So they were devoted to growing and going, growing and going, and we're going to watch them do that over the next couple of months. So we closed last week with a few questions uh, that we are going to consider over the duration of our study in Acts as we consider how faithful we are to this early vision in this early example of the church, which is the only example we have, of course, um, as the movement of God, the body of Christ. And uh, we, we, we closed asking uh, if we are doing the things that they were doing. So these questions will be especially important to consider throughout tonight's message. So I'm going to throw them to you again. Uh, and I want you to think about these questions tonight as we study. And I want you to, if you didn't write them down last week, I want you to write them down and think about them as we study the rest of the book of Acts. And as you go about your daily lives as a Christian, uh, think about um, how we are measuring up to the example that they set for us. And, uh, and, and tonight's message is really going to hinge on their following through on, on these questions themselves. So we, we asked last week, um, are we devoted to learning as they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine? Are we devoted to studying and, and, and hearing the word corporately and also privately? Are we devoted to fellowship? So the two big pillars of the church that we read about in Acts 2, they were devoted to the doctrine and to the learning of God's word and to the fellowship with God's people. So we got to ask ourselves, are we devoted to becoming like Christ? It's a simple question. Yes or no. Does your life tell the story that you are growing in your relationship with Christ? That is there a dynamic, everyday growth is made, little at a time, sometimes a lot at a time. But are we devoted, as in day-to-day -day attending to and being in fellowship with Jesus Christ, are we devoted to becoming like Christ? Because if we aren't, we'll never get past this chapter. Are we devoted to belonging to Christ's body, as in the fellowship that comes with being a Christian, being a church member? Are we devoted to belonging to the body of Jesus Christ? Now, a lot of people are good at the top, at trying to separate these and say, well, you can be one and not the other, but that's not how it works in Acts. And I don't think that's how it works in the whole kingdom of God in general. Are we devoted to becoming like Jesus and belonging to the body of Christ? So those are two questions that are so, so crucial. Because if, if we don't have yeses for those, we won't get tonight's message as, as, as anywhere uh, uh, near our own reality or as something we can live out. Also, we asked last week, are we in awe of who God is and what he's doing? As in, does what he offer us stop us in our tracks and distract us from the other stuff the world is, is, is trying to get our attention with? Are we in awe of who God is? Is it more than just, wow, that was a great song or that was a great sermon or that was a, a, a cool moment? Does it go with us and are we stopped in our tracks every day, day after day, in awe of who God is and what he's doing? And are we surrendered to him so that he can work through us? Because if we aren't surrendered, then he won't work through us because we clearly don't show the signs of wanting him to. So are we in awe, as they were, of who he is and what he can do and what he wants to do in us? So again, these aren't, not having a test after this, but again, keep these in mind as we go forward. This is a big one. Would we put our kingdoms for sale if it meant adding to God's kingdom? Because we're going to see a lot of giving and doing for others and putting others first in this whole book. And we can't just pass over that as not applying to our generation because it clearly does. Would we put our kingdoms for sale if it meant adding to God's kingdom like these early disciples did? Lastly, are we being the church from day to day in partnership with and on mission for our local church? So that kind of absorbs all those other questions. Are we being the church from day to day, not just Sunday to Sunday, but day to day in partnership with, representation of, on mission for, um, as a part of our 
local church. So again, a lot of questions, I know, but these are meant to kind of set the tone for us for big picture. So our obedience to these things will determine whether or not we see the opportunities and experience what the rest of Acts is going to show us that the early disciples did. Now, it's important to understand that Acts doesn't chronicle every service, every day, or every event in the early church. Um, Acts covers from 30 A.D. to the uh, late 50s, early 60s A.D. So every chapter is not a day in the life of the Christians. It's, uh, it might have an episode from every other year. We don't, you know, we can, I can parse out the timeline for you. But I can tell you that it doesn't represent every day. It doesn't even represent every month. And not every year is even uh, chronicled in this book. So as we read Acts... Um, again, make, keep in mind that every chapter doesn't represent what happened every day because there's action on every page. And it, sometimes we, we read this book and think, wow, something big was happening all the time. Not that it can't happen all the time. It happens when God wants it to. But Acts does not chronicle every service, every day, every event in the early church. We get just a glimpse of what's going on. As we talked a few weeks ago, Acts MO is to set the tempo for us regarding uh, the spirit of the movement. As in, it's not about showing us the style uh, uh, making us repeat that style. It's showing us the substance of the movement and how we can carry on that same spirit and that same substance. Now, what we're going to find in every chapter in Acts is that the church always had a very specific goal. And it might be different than what you think. They were always looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. That was their MO in every chapter. And I, I'm bringing this up because tonight's chapter is an example of, of what often distracts us about Acts. But everything else in the book of Acts is just window dressing and stage building in order to proclaim Jesus. Now, again, I bring this up because it's very tempting to think Acts is all about signs and wonders. Because almost a lot of these early chapters have big, oh my goodness, never seen before miracles. Not that God can't continue to do miracles. He does. I, I walk because of a similar miracle that this guy had in this, in this chapter. But I bring this up because it's tempting to think that Acts is all about signs and wonders. As most of us know, chapter 3 is famous for a miracle that takes place, a real miracle that could happen again. Of course, the miracles will get our attention and will breeze past the sermons that follow every single one of them. And I understand that. I'm a preacher. People remember when something big happens, when somebody gets saved, or when somebody gives a testimony. Nobody remembers the sermons. I understand that. It's not just Peter. It's not just me. It's anybody. Greg, I'm sure you can, you can relate to that. We can work hard on sermons, but hey, people forget those. That's okay, because we'll probably repeat them again, and that helps us not have to, you know, come up with something new all the time. Peter repeated himself a lot. Jesus did too. So I think that helps us uh, follow that example. But we give our attention to the miracles in Acts. And that's great. That's what catches our eye. Uh, but back in Acts 2, the way Pentecost began was, the get, was to get the attention of the biggest audience possible to proclaim the greatest message ever heard. Um, we see that the same format as in Acts 3 because God does something. He gets the attention and it gets everybody listening. We see that carry us through Acts 5, and then another big event happens. But again, I bring this up, not to downplay the miracles, but to emphasize and highlight the message, the message. Uh, the church is following the same pattern that Jesus implemented, especially in John's gospel. And of course, John, or, or Jesus, was following the same pattern that God had used in the Old Testament. Now, let me explain. Remember back in Exodus, when God uh, sent Moses to deliver the Hebrews from Egypt. Remember how God got the attention of the Jewish people and confirmed Moses as his man. Back in Exodus, God performed signs and wonders to get Israel's attention. 
Remember Moses said, hey, they're not listening to me. I stutter. I'm not really eloquent. They don't know who I am. I'm a murderer from way back. You know, I'm on the run. So you got to give me some validation in front of them. So he puts his hand in his cloak, and it comes out leprous. He puts it back. It's healed. The rod turns to a snake, and it turns back into a rod. He did things to get their attention, and wow, people were convinced this is God's guy. Uh, Of course, God performed, uh, uh, sent plagues on Egypt to show them that he was their God, and he was going against the Egyptian gods. God performed signs and wonders to get Israel's attention. Same, and the likewise, Jesus performed signs and wonders to get Israel's attention. But that's not all God did in Exodus, and that's not all God did through Jesus, of course. Back in Exodus, God offered a lamb to win their affection. So it wasn't all about the miracles and the signs and the wonders. Those got the attention, but what was really the whole, the, the, the big, the, the core activity or the core you know, thing that happened in Exodus? God offered a lamb to win their affection. God offered a lamb through the Passover to save the nation. And he saved the nation and he sealed them in the Red Sea as a baptism. So the, the miracles got their attention, but the lamb won their affection. But then he didn't stop there. He issued his word to shift their allegiance. So through Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments were given, all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, where Moses is given the word over and over and over again, repeating himself, given the Ten Commandments, given the temple or the tabernacle ordinances and all those things. God gave his word to shift their allegiance, and he continued to give that word to build off his revelation, to build off and to cement their allegiance and affiliation as exclusive to him. Again, Jesus followed this same template. He performed signs and wonders to get Israel's attention, and he always stressed that there was something still greater to come. Remember in Mark 2 when they brought the guy on a mat to Jesus, the four guys carried him in, through the, lowered him through the roof. Jesus, the guy came because he thought he was going to be healed, but Jesus said, you know, I'd like to forgive your sins first. And they thought, well, we didn't come here to get forgiven of sins. We could have went in the temple and got that. So they thought. But people kind of murmured that Jesus would think he had the ability and the authority to forgive sins. And the people thought the bigger miracle would have been the guy's healing. But what did Jesus say there in Mark 2? Which is easier to say to this paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? Y'all think that, the, 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 that me saying your sins are forgiven is a lesser thing than healing this guy? Because they didn't understand the gravity of sin, and they thought it was just something, a ceremonial thing. We know what it took to forgive our sins. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Far more monumental than Jesus saying, rise, take up your bed and walk. But what did Jesus go on to do in that story? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He demonstrated his power over sickness to show that he had a greater power over sin. He showed them what he could do in a physical way to show them a greater work he could do in a spiritual way. So when people, when people became obsessed with his miracles, he pointed them to a greater miracle to come, one that would not just be temporary. Because this guy who got up with his ability to walk again, eventually he died. He's not walking around Jerusalem saying, I just can't die with Lazarus and all the other guys. They died. Their miracle was real, but it was short-lived. Because like everybody else, they died. But he pointed them to something that would not be temporary and would make an eternal and internal difference in their hearts. And remember in John 6, when they were demanding more signs and more bread and more miracles, Jesus pointed them to a spiritual work that God was going to do that his wonders were pointing to. 
Again, why would Jesus downplay his own power? He wasn't. He was simply trying to get us to understand that a greater power was available. The power of Jesus' death and resurrection to forgive and free us from sins. Now, in Acts, we're going to see this same pattern initially. Signs and wonders to get the attention of the people. But rather than pointing to a work to come, they were pointing back to the work of Jesus. The death and resurrection. And they preached the words, not new words, but the words that Jesus taught them. So again, following the same pattern. Attention, affection, shifting the allegiance. God did miracles to get the attention. He performed a sacrifice to win our hearts. And he preached the word or gave the word to keep us um, with him. This, is the, this begins to show how they approach the world and how we ourselves are to approach the world. Whereas the church in our day, the church is not brand new. You know, people kind of know who we are at this point. But in Jesus' day or in Acts, uh, there were plenty who didn't know Jesus and hadn't heard of him or didn't know what the church was doing. So in these early days, the signs and wonders were important to confirm their identity as the body of Christ. So why in Acts are these, there are miracles as similar to the ones that Jesus did? And why don't we see those same things in today's world? And not that, they're not, impo- not that they're not possible, but why don't we see them in the same way that they were in Acts? Or why shouldn't we see them? Because they were serving a purpose to show that the identity of these people was the body of Christ, just as God confirmed Christ's identity, just as he confirmed Moses. He was confirming the church. Now, the world is far more aware of the church today, not saying that we're respected or accepted always, God may indeed perform signs and wonders to confirm he is in the church, but what we need to take away is that we aren't to wait on such to do our jobs. As in an Acts, they were waiting for God to do something big, so they got the stage. But we don't have to wait, because we have been given a standing and have been given the power that we need. Uh, For the most part, the church isn't new, and we have an audience and can win that audience. Now, the context for who we are and what we are founded upon is understood enough that we simply are to look for opportunity to proclaim Christ and teach his word. But by all means, by all means, when something miraculous happens, because God does miracles every day, people, miracles happen all the time. So when something miraculous happens, when God does something amazing that deserves our attention, we ought to be ready to point to God's power and preach Jesus and not science it out or explain it through some man-made idea or through some self-glorification away. But we ought to be quick to point to God who did the great work and preached Jesus through that great work, just as they did. So keep all that in mind as we unpack Acts 3, because Acts 3 is an episode of Peter and John's day-to-day life. It's just a day in the life of Peter and John. As they look for opportunities to tell their world about Jesus, this is what their agenda is. How can we tell people about Jesus? And I really think that we're going to learn a lot from this short text tonight. So listen to Acts 3, verses 1 through 10 to set us up. Now Peter and John went to, up together to the temple in the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask for alms from these who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John and Peter, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
He took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood up and walked, entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Clearly, this guy was healed, walking, leaping, praising, and all the people saw him walking and praising God because this guy didn't walk, so when he was walking, that was a big deal. This is why they're giving attention to that. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, quickly, I want to break this down. I might touch on some things that aren't usually touched on, but I think it's important. Verse 1, this shows that they continued to go to the temple. This might not be a big deal to you, but I think it's a big deal. They continued to go to the temple even after they had sort of broken away from Judaism. They didn't have to go back to the temple. They had a church, which wasn't about the building, of course. It was about their gathering. But they continued to go to the temple day after day for this hour of prayer. Now, why? They did not burn bridges with their history and their culture. They continued to be present and positive influences. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the equivalent of doing some secular thing, but think about what the Bible says about the temple and the sacrificial system on post-crucifixion. Hebrews says it's an insult and an affront to God to sacrifice on the altar after Jesus was the final and full sacrifice. So everything about the Jewish religion was unnecessary and superfluous at this point. It could even be chalked up as offensive to Christianity. Yet, yet, the temple was still a place of prayer and a place where contextually the one true God was sought after. So Peter and John still went there because they knew that was a place they could make a difference and reach people with the gospel. Now, I might be making a mountain out of a molehill, but I think this is important. With regard to our unbelieving culture and institutions with regard to the imperfect and incomplete denominations in our world we need to understand that our presence and our participation and our activity in the midst of these institutions and our imperfect churches is very important there are some people that are so holy and they're so squeaky clean that you know if they were you know maybe I should support them every month because they clearly are better than me but there are some people they're so holy They think, well, I can't go there and I can't associate with them, can't even go to church because I just, you know, everything's just wrong there. And here are two Christians going to the temple where they didn't have to go and shouldn't really have went, but they went there because they knew there was an audience and they knew there was an opportunity. So why do I tell you this? Our attitude towards our world and the church should not be contemptuous or dismissive. We should not hold in contempt every institution that is wrong. And there's a lot that's wrong about the world, believe me. I can quote scripture after scripture about what's wrong with the world, but that doesn't make a difference. So we should not hold in contempt every institution that is, that is wrong or be dismissive of every church that just gets something wrong because we all get something wrong. Where there is context for our intersection and opportunity for our presence, we should embrace the opportunity to be light and glorify God. Amidst an imperfect backdrop, we as equally imperfect people can point to our perfect God and his powerful plan. Does that make sense? Because I can preach a sermon with a lot of support about why Peter and John should have never went back to the temple after the resurrection. They didn't need to, but they did. And I can preach sermons about why we should never associate with certain kind of Christians and certain religious people and certain political people on and on and on and you can have the bible to support you but here are these two men who went to a place they didn't have to go because they went on a mission 
Not only because it was harmless, but because it was fertile ground for God to make himself known. Now also, verse 2, it says that they brought this guy there every day. So think about how many times Peter and John had walked by this guy. Heck, think about how many times Jesus had walked by this guy. Never think about that, do we? So back to the point about the miracle. Yes, what's about to happen is remarkable and may well be replicated in our world. Who knows? Through one of you. But again, the point is on this day, God chose to use this seemingly random event to amplify the gospel. A man that had been passed over a lot. This day, for some reason, God chose, was, God decided was the day that something big was going to happen through his life and in the lives of the people around him. Again, a few things about this miracle. It began with a burden and a passion in the heart of Peter and John to show and share Jesus. That's the difference maker. That's what brought them to the temple, even though they could have avoided it and kept to themselves and stayed with their group. So we got to ask another question. Do we have this same burden and this same passion as they did? I mean, you know, the Jews, think about this. Under the law, they couldn't go anywhere but the t- synagogue or the temple on st- Saturdays. They couldn't walk to the store, couldn't play ball, couldn't do a lot of things. And think, think about this. Their Saturdays were finally free. And they were looking forward to a full day on Sunday of worshiping the Lord. And here they go back to the temple on their day off. Why would they do that? Because they knew there were people there that were hungry and seeking after God. They had a burden and a passion. This passion and burden begins with an awareness for our own need and our total dependency on Jesus. Peter and John learned that. The lame man learned that. You see, it's like Jesus told the man in Mark 2, healing the man's leg would have been easy, but also temporary. There was a greater need. Does this mean we shouldn't meet people's earthly needs? pray for their earthly healings? Of course we should do those things. But we do those things with an eternal awareness and perspective. An eternal awareness and perspective. Let me show you this from John, from 1 John. By this we know, love, that he laid his life down for us, Jesus, and we ought to lay our life down for the brothers, as in we ought to put other people before ourselves. In this next verse, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Well, I don't have to help somebody to love them. I can tell them about Jesus. John says, if we don't love them or telling them about Jesus, we'll never accomplish anything. Now, more on that in a minute, but that's what John is saying. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So in the context of when somebody has a need, whether to pray for them or give to them. Give so that and pray that every earthly need may be met. And if you can meet it and you don't, shame on you. Shame on me. And we might pray for them and they might not be healed, but they might. But that's not up to us. But why do we do it? So that our example might point to a greater reminder that our eternal needs, their eternal needs, have been met. Does that make sense? It's not either or. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. There are many examples in Acts of feeding the hungry, giving the poor to the poor. In this case, praying for the sick. And thankfully, God heals this man. No matter what, the disciples sought to meet these earthly needs for two reasons. 
that we should likewise follow. So that, the, so that we could show the authenticity of our love. As in, we're not just walking up to them and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know you, you know, I, I hear you, you're hungry, but listen, I'm going to give you some spiritual food. No, no, no. By doing for them, the authenticity of our love is shown and validated. And, as John would say, as they demonstrated, we add legitimacy to our message. You say, well, God knows my heart. I'll just walk past or I'll just go right into preaching. Well, if you walk on past, you won't ever get the chance to share. And if you go right into preaching, I'll tell you from experience, nobody's going to listen. So God's word tells us that's how it should be. And no surprise, Peter, by authenticating his love, by adding legitimacy to his message, Peter launches into a powerful sermon that would not have been as powerful had they not been as faithful to this man and to God. In closing, Peter provides a message that is more than just for this man, but for anybody that wants to listen. But it's important that we understand how he got the audience. Because most of us, we want to jump right to verse 11. And believe me, I'm a preacher. I want to jump right to verse 11, and I don't want to do the other stuff. Not that I don't love you, but we think it's not necessary. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in, denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Peter had the gospel summed up pretty succinctly, didn't he? From Abraham all the way to Jesus to Pilate, y'all killed him, but you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, which we are witnesses. So again, Peter had this sermon you know, down to three verses. If only we could do that. I could do that. God of Abraham sent Jesus. Y'all killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. And in his name and through faith in his name was this man made strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So God demonstrated his power through this man. Peter says, don't marvel at me. Don't marvel at us. Marvel at God who continues to reach out to a world that rejected him and his message again and again. And Peter says, God has done this so that you would get a chance. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did, it, you did that in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled, thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, and your sins may be blotted out. So Peter jumps right to the invitation. He gives the gospel, and he says, Y'all, what this man received in his heart, or in his body, you can receive in your heart. Pretty rapid fire getting to the point, but man, that's the truth. You see, if we want to see God work in our heart like he worked in this man's body, we must repent and trust in Jesus' finished work. It's that simple. Jesus died for our sins. He rose back to life and offers us his spirit. We can find resurrection power and can come back to life through this provision. Peter closes this sermon with a direct word to the Jews by referencing their history, but I want to focus on the rest of 19 through 21. So that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he might send Jesus, who was preached to you before, 
whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. So Peter mentions these two times. Times of refreshing, time for restoring. The times of refreshing is the church age. The restoration is the kingdom to come. So we're in the midst of this refreshing age, building towards this restoration. We have in front of us a rare and unique opportunity to be refreshed by the Spirit of God every day and be used like Peter and John were and be changed like this man was. We are invited just like this audience was to be revived amidst a world that is draining and depleting so that we might see the world fully restored one day. Available to us right now is this refreshing spirit from God, which shows us that we have a purpose in our world every day and invites us to be present, to be persistent, and be prepared. Jesus shows up, showed up in the world. He shows up every day in our life. Do we show up for his refreshing spirit? Do we show up in our world to share this gift? Do we go into the world like Peter and John did? Do we pay attention to that one that calls out with an earthly need like Peter and John did? Do we pray and give to those that have a need like Peter and John did? Do we use that opportunity to go into sharing the gospel like Peter and John did? Are we present or are we otherwise located? It's a yes or no question, isn't it? Are we persistent? Do we com make commitments only to taper off a few days later? Do we re renew our faith on Sunday when the emotion is heavy, but then leave our vow at the altar? Are we persistent? Is this just a one-time thing, or do we do this day after day like they did? Are we preparing ourselves for the random doors that God might open at any given time? This man they passed every day for decades finally says, I have a need, can you help me? And they were prepared to help him. And thank God they did more than just help him up. All these questions we must consider, and as verse 20 puts it, Jesus wants to show up in our life. Are we open to him? This is so that he may send Jesus, who was preached. He wants to show up in your life every day. Are you open to him? He wants to work through your life. Are we available Come on, what we need is this refreshing spirit from heaven. I trust that the spirit of God has used this word to convict us on what we're missing out. To open us up to repent and receive this gift. Can we do that collectively tonight? Can we join together in spirit and ask for this tonight? Will you personally commit to praying and asking for this? Or are you too busy? Are we too uninterested? Are we unconvinced maybe? It's my prayer. May God reach and refresh us so that we'll realize that there's only one path to restoration through his resurrection power. There's only one path. There's only one way to get it. Peter and John, the lame man, and this audience got it all the same way. By faith in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He is available, silver and gold, I don't have, but what I do have, I implore you to receive tonight. And here's the thing, God in heaven could give you all the silver and gold more than you could count, but that's not what you need. That won't make a lame man walk, and that won't make our sins forgiven 
and washed away. And that won't change our lives. And that doesn't open the windows of heaven and give us the power of God's refreshing spirit. Only faith in Jesus does. So will you ask as a church and as a person for this refreshing spirit that we might be present, persistent, and prepared to follow this example? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this example that was set for us. Lord, I love Peter and John's honesty. They're, they're just men. What made them make a difference in this story was their availability, their presence, their persistence, and their preparation. God, every day you are working miracles in our world, and you use those to open doors that we might proclaim that you have sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world, to forgive and free people from their sin and to give them a fresh start and brand new life. Lord, help us to follow Peter and John's example to go into the world and be present and persistent and prepared when that door opens. When somebody reaches their hand out with some great need, we'll respond with a greater answer than they may even ask for. Lord, help us to love, to authenticate our love. Help us to give and add legitimacy to our message, but help us most of all to be prepared to preach the true and powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way the world can be changed. That's the way we can find refreshing and restoration. All of us. We need it so desperately. God, I pray you would baptize Risen Church in this refreshing spirit. I pray you would baptize everybody in this house in this refreshing spirit. As they were saved, renew them and refill them and replenish them in that initial and powerful insufficient work and raise up a generation that is going to go into the world committed and devoted to growing and going for the kingdom we ask this all in jesus's name amen